So today we have a very, very special guest with us. Uh, he was rank one in India on Top Coder. Turned down 100 million worth of acquisition offers from both Google and Facebook. And then in turn ended up being a self-made billionaire through the tech companies he founded. We have Prasanna today with us, co-founder of Rippling, which is a tech account today. Welcome to school, Scalar Pod, Prasanna. Uh, and interestingly, Prasanna attributes most of this massive value creation to having identified six Sigma events being at the right place at the right time. So to begin with, Prasanna, I would love to ask you that, how do you define these six Sigma events? And, you know, like leveraging them led to creating so much impact in your life. Sure. Um um, so six sigma is like the term from math, right? It's actually six standard deviations from mean. So, you know, the the math is more like you know if you take everything that's happening in the world, like you know, for example, what is someone's height, um, and just plot it on a curve, you know, you it'll be a standard normal distribution, and most people will sort of congregate somewhere around the center, and then as you go farther farther and farther away from the center, you enter into the tails where the probabilities are lower and lower. Right. And, you know, at sixth standard deviation from from the mean, you're sort of talking about like events with odds of like 0.0001 percent or something like that. Right. Like very rare events. Right. Right. Let's talk about, you know, like in last 15 years, such events that you came across. Right. First, we talked about being rank one in India on top coder, which led to, you know, someone from a nondescript town in India directly getting a job in U.S., at one of the most soft after employees, that was you, right? Uh, and I remember this, uh, I think, uh, back in 2007, this interesting event when there was someone with a username of nemesis underscore <laughs> NITT, uh, someone who no one in the world knew this gentleman before. And suddenly this gentleman was rank one in India. Uh, tell us about that uh, and, you know, your um, uh, top coder, how top coder added value uh, back then. Sure, man. Um, I mean, I think top coder is one of the first Six Sigma events that mm-hmm. I encountered in my life. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, a, like that just massively accelerated my career. And being right about that, like, you know, spending a lot of nights and weekends on Top Coder when my peers are sort of going to college and focusing on academics or whatever. I was 18 at this time, right? Like, you know, um, and then finally getting the feedback that that was actually the right bet. Right. You know, um, when I zoom out, Right. And watch, you know, everyone being an automaton, just following right. status quo. Right. And, you know, you you go to college, like, you know, and then you sort of, when you zoom out and you ask, hey, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Like, there is this thing called top coder. And, you know, you can prove yourself being like a nobody. Right. And there is a meritocratic contest where, you know, you can, you know, if you can solve these computer science problems, you could be like, you know, ranked one in, you know, Regardless of what your age is, right. regardless of where you're from, right. and uh, you know, like some of these big companies like Google, um, etc., were starting to hire from that. Right. And uh, you know, Google is a company that did not even visit my campus for placements right. back in those days. Right. You went to NIT Trichy. Right? I went to NIT Trichy. Yeah. It's one of the top colleges in India, and Google was not right. visiting them for campus placements. Right. In fact, Google did not even have an India office back right. then. Right. Right. It was maybe just starting out or something. Right. So. You know, that was the dream job for anyone in my college Absolutely. by a wide margin. Right. Um, 
and you know they wouldn't even get an interview there right and they were hiring from this place you know and um, it made sense to me that that's the only thing that matters and like colleges don't matter right um but i was like the odd man out it even though it seemed so fucking obvious i was still the odd man out right, right? and um, um you know i became really good at this stuff like i was ranked one in india um you know twice google code jam world finalist number one in india twice in google code jam and um, before i graduated i had an offer from google in the us yeah which you know nobody has ever done like you know in my batches before or like anyone after like nobody right. from my college sort of got a job in the us right. or got a job from google or anything you know even for two years after i graduated that never happened right and i remember when i joined college my dad is like a government employee and when i joined college in nit it's actually a really good college so when i when i joined my dad was like you know asking my seniors whether i'll get a job <laughs> after i finished college and the seniors were like you know yeah like the average pay is more like uh uh 40000 50000 rupees a month right and my dad at that time was making 30000 rupees a month yeah okay like after th- 20 30 years of service right. and he was like i don't understand why <laughs> this these kids need to get paid that much <laughs> right <laughs> and uh, you know uh, my first job was uh, from google us and um, you know i remember like my monthly salary just like far exceeded all his life savings like wow. 20 years of savings right like that is kind of what uh, the delta becomes right it's just um, insane and you know i i knew it was the right bet i i was alone i was lonely in that bet right and honestly it helped me a lot that i was alone because there was far less competition right and it also personally gave me the confidence that yeah like you don't do things that other people are doing you have to right. sort of find what is special right. like top coder was just happening right. you know the more time it takes nowadays it's very very competed away right? right um and being early on a very important trend you know you can you can just like turbocharge absolutely your life so i think this was the first you know as as we can see that the six sigma event right that uh, comparing to where even a time you know back in 2007 6 7 when even a 50000 rupees per month salary was considered you know like yeah. as if people are overpaid right and then suddenly being able to you know kind of have this orbit shifting change uh to you know a high paying job at google in us uh and then from there i think uh, when you went to us I think there were then another similar orbit shifting uh, changes when you co-founded like a little, and then I think your journey during YC. Tell us a little more about that. Yeah. Um, How did you come across YC? You know your interactions with Paul Graham and and Sam Altman. Tell us about that. Yeah. So um, after I graduated, um, so I mean while I was in college, like Google was my dream job, right? Yeah. and everyone used to call me like google prasna in college yeah <laughs> I, i remember that yeah <laughs> you know uh, google gave me like a bag of goodies like t-shirts you know everyone who wants a google t-shirt comes to my room and gets it <laughs> so i was like almost synonymous with like google yeah. back in college yeah. and by the time i graduated you know i had grown out of it mm-hmm. you know uh, i turned down google yeah to go work at microsoft right. you know they just paid me like a lot more right <laughs> i think that would have been the only parameter back then <laughs> yeah 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 and uh, you know it was the top paying job at that time like so i was making 100000 dollars a year 
Yeah. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> that seemed, you know, that's like nothing today, but like it was, it was like crazy yeah, was back in the day, days, yeah. you know. Um, so that was like, you know, I, I, I sort of like sat back and realized, what the fuck, like, you know, my dream yeah. that I thought was my dream yeah. for the longest time. Yeah. I'm turning it down now. Yeah. In a few years, I've outgrown it. Yeah. So that was like really mind blowing for me. And that was super confidence inducing, Fascinating. you know. Um, and then, you know, I went and worked at Microsoft for the first two, three months. Like I worked like crazy. Mm. Um, you know, I were, you know, I always, I always thought that I was special. Like, you know, I was um, going in like lots of energy, young guy out of college, you know. Um, I remember the day I joined Microsoft, like, like the week I joined Microsoft, there was, um, there was a, um, there was a production issue. Right. Microsoft was trying to launch like uh, the Bing crawler that was being built, and it, it had like uh, it could they couldn't launch it because it had its performance was really poor. You know, if you if you launch it like that, like you will sort of burn like tens of millions of dollars, right? Um, and I was like, okay, okay, you know. Uh, uh, and the, the my manager was sending my manager's manager was sending a mail that uh, this is the only thing that matters. This is what everyone everyone should work on. Right. And uh, by the time I was in sort of onboarding program, I wasn't even like expected to write anything, write any code or something. You know, that night I decided like, you know, I'm going to fix this tonight. Wow. Right. So I, sp you know, um, I spent all night, like, you know, spent the first hour like setting up the code base. Right. You know, um, and like, I didn't understand anything. Like, I didn't understand right. what was going on. Right. But I profiled it and I knew which lines of code we had an issue. And I worked, you know, all night and like in by the morning I sent an email saying like hey I think I fixed this like this is the profile this is the PR like you know um, 30 line 30 different files got changed and right. this this is the fix right. and I felt insanely proud about myself right, right. Um, <clears throat> so that was that was exhilarating right. like you know everyone was like who's this kid who's this kid that just yeah. showed up yeah. <laughs> no I think it's also very fascinating that you know uh, often there is this question that why are engineers paid so much Right. But I think, again, this uh, the amount of value creation that particularly for, you know, organizations which are at such large scale, just probably optimizing some of the routines to save few hundred milliseconds might lead to savings of tens of millions of dollars for the company. Right. Right. And I think uh, I think that fundamentally that, you know, just, just as a young kid right. who might be being paid maybe hundred one fifty thousand dollars. Right. And one might say, why? <laughs> uh, but actually, you are as an engineer, there's this, uh, you know, I think unique thing. Right. So much value could be created that, you know, like just uh, order of magnitude more than uh, what they might be getting paid. Totally, totally. Yeah. Tons of leverage, tons of leverage. And, you know, so I, I felt super special and, um, you know, um, and then what actually happened was that code to get checked in, it took six months. <laughs> you know, by month three, I'm totally checked out. I'm like, this is not the place for me. Yeah. It's like LeBron Jones playing basketball. <laughs> And passing it to someone who just yeah. fumbles the ball, yeah. who walks slowly to collect the ball back. Yeah. Like, this is not the place for me to play. Right. So I was like, dude, like, you know, like, you know, the biggest fear of my life has always been, and, and it continues to be, that my peak is behind me. Hmm. Um, and that was my fear. Wow. Um... You know, so it was like, fuck, like, you know, what's the point in waking up? Like, right. why do anything right. at all? So I was chilling for a while and then I decided, okay, like, this doesn't work for me. Yeah. 
I need to do something. Um, you know, I need to make big bets again. Right. And uh, you know, um, originally my thought was like maybe I'll just freelance, set some top coder problems one day a week, yeah. and then you know just do projects that I enjoy right. uh, for the rest of the time. You know, right. like I don't need much money to live. Right. So maybe I'll do that. Um, and that's when I came across Paul Graham's blogs, mm-hmm. and that changed my life. you know so he was he started at a similar point himself yeah you know he was freelancing and just living off of it right you know and then he sort of came into this idea called startups yeah where instead of freelancing one day a week for the rest of your life to pay for the other five days of the week yeah. what if you collect those one day across the entire life and re- just refragment your life right. so that you pack those one days of work into four years or right. five years right. and then chill for the rest of your life right yeah. <laughs> and that refragmenting was very powerful because um, it created nonlinear returns yeah. you know uh, you could uh, you could just compound if you just like compound interest is a very powerful force indeed and if you can pack a lots of years of your life within a short period of time um you know you can create a lot of value right. and a lot of wealth right and back in those days even for yc there you know just like my ambitions when we started out was fairly minimal right just to pay my bills back in those days when yc started out their ambitions were fairly limited you know if geeks could get a little bit rich they right. could make a few million dollars right that's a success that yeah. that is the kpi right. for paul graham right you know and the kpi was like insane like you know the actual performance was insane like 50% of yc founders you know back in the first three batches or the first four batches were millionaires yeah you know and like a million dollars you know again back in those days perhaps arguably even today is like fuck you money of course you know you don't need to you need to listen to your boss kind of money true you know you don't need to work a day in your life kind of money yeah. you know and that's really what i wanted to do you know i wanted to roll the dice on the american dream yeah and uh, decided to you know uh, first of all i re- recognized that it's a six sigma event that mm. this is something that is unique in the world yeah and you know this has never occurred before yeah um internet was massively reducing the cost of starting a company yeah which is the trend on which yc itself was riding right and you know um because of that reason if costs of starting a company fell really low mm-hmm. that unlocked a new caliber new pool of founders who would have never been founders without that right because if you need a lot of capital you need a lot of maturity you need to wear some suits and go and convince the vcs right. to give that capital right and if you don't need any money right if it's just to pay your own bills then you don't need that much capital at all right. and yc was it creating a new market right um and unlocking something new that has never happened before in the world and it was working right like the metrics made it so clear that there is insane demand yep like it the performance was just amazing right right um so again it felt like this is the only thing that matters in the world right anyone else who is doing anything else is stupid like you know you you can roll your dice you, you join yc there is a 50% odds that you made fuck you money right why isn't anyone why else doing it that, why yeah. why isn't everyone doing this yeah. this is insane right and um, 
um so i thought like you know this was the most important thing that was happening in the world this is sort of going to be the center of the world yeah and um, decided to move mm-hmm. to the valley and give it a shot so you just uh, quit your job at microsoft i quit my job at microsoft uh, convince my roommate <laughs> at microsoft what did your parents say about that um and you were what 22 year old at that time yeah 22 22 22 fascinating yeah I yeah think, yeah few are i think but that that conviction on being able to identify that six sigma and knowing that you know like i can i can take that leap of faith and just try it yes yes yeah and in my mind what options did i have yeah like i can't continue working at microsoft like that will be insane i'll you know um that's a waste of life it's like <laughs> i don't live another day in my life it's sort of you know like um the buddhist monks <laughs> what they do is if they if you can eat like some really tasty food mm-hmm. you can just remember the memory of that food yeah. and you can replay that memory mm. again and again you don't need to yeah. eat that food yeah. all, yeah. all the time and you know like it's almost like you can just replay a day of microsoft's life like again and again <laughs> it's the same thing you know why <laughs> eat that food every day yeah. um so in my mind like you know i had to do something yeah and this thing was happening yeah this thing was so special yeah that it, it was a no brainer right um and uh, so yeah decided to take a leap of faith and quit my job convince my roommate and move to the valley mm-hmm. and uh, the first day we were in the valley uh, it was to do the yc interview did you make your roommate quit his job too yes of course oh wow <laughs> <laughs> and he was like uh, you know uh, he was like why don't we go to india and start a startup or something we don't even have a us visa right that is what anshuman and me did right yeah. we came back to india to right. start the company right right and i told him dude this is six sigma event yeah like this is not like a normal day in your life like this is something that's never going to happen before like has never happened before it's not going to happen again yeah. this is like a really important event right. we need to be here right and convinced him to move to the move to the valley you know the first day we met uh, we were um meeting paul cram mm-hmm. for a y combinator interview wow <laughs> paul cram doesn't take the vice interviews anymore because of course the applicants are so many that's right but yeah that's right that's right and then what happened in that interview and uh, you know uh, we were uh, we had no clue about business <laughs> no brainer <laughs> yeah yeah we we had we had no clue about business at all and uh, paul graham was like after the meeting he was like you guys look really smart on paper <laughs> um but your ideas are super dumb do you do you have any other ideas that i can fund maybe yeah. and uh, i was trying to you know i was like hey this is the next big thing like i was doubling down on selling my idea and he was like no 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 okay fine guys like <laughs> see you later yeah. <laughs> and um um two batches later mm-hmm. um you know paul graham was trying to sell me <laughs> on getting into ic <laughs> you know he was trying to convince me hard why i should join ic because at that point my startup was working really well right the startup you founded uh, like a little like a little right yeah So what was happening there tell us more about that what got paul graham to you know <laughs> chase you all that he's getting to ic <laughs> yeah like um, um so the first year or so we were trying many different startup ideas we had no clue we were just engineers you know we had no clue what would sell you know we had we lived in our own world right um 
and um, and we can we were delusional we convinced ourselves we were building something the useful the founders are always delusional sure yeah. sure um and uh, nothing was working for the first 12 months 18 months we were on a tourist visa we couldn't stay in the us so we had to go out and back in and so on and so forth <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh you know nothing was really working um each start each thing that we tried worked better than the previous one mm. so it was it was you know there is there is something that was happening we weren't sure where we are going but something was happening and um, um but on the whole like you know we just uh, had no clue we were just constantly changing markets that we were attacking we were not building like a moat or an understanding of any one customer like i think in retrospect that's the biggest mistake we were making at that time was not sticking to like one customer or one market one problem statement exactly. and just just doubling down on that exactly yeah. exactly you can you can solve like different problems for the same customer like you know closely related problems and stuff you can build like more and more edge or right. understanding or advantages right. balaji calls it like an idea map or, right. or an idea maze right. so you know just traveling around like uh one area gives you a lot of understanding of that area indeed we didn't know that we just um, were all over the place you know tried so many different ideas and the ideas won't have anything to do with each other so that was the biggest mistake we made at that time um and then um my girlfriend back in those days now she's my wife she called me up and i was talking to her and she she said like there was a website called fitfinder mm-hmm. that was taking off in her campus she was mm-hmm. studying in cambridge uk mm-hmm. at that time mm-hmm. that website was taking off in her campus mm-hmm. and it went from 0 to a million users in a month oh wow that was insane that was insane at that time yeah. and uh, and that website got shut down by the college oh, wow. because the the kid was studying in college and uh, the the college authorities did not like the website yeah. so they said if you want to graduate shut it down and she called me and said like why don't you guys just copy it yeah and that was my third six sigma event right you know it doesn't happen every day that a site with such insane growth and demand right is voluntarily shut down right by the founder in fact the founder was planning to he was graduating in a month and he was planning to start the sh- site mm-hmm. after a month mm-hmm. so that was my shot at it yeah. that was my opportunity yeah like having done maybe 10 different ideas and failing right i had a clear sense that how rare these things are yeah and i had to do it now that was my third six sigma event that i had exposure to right. so the only thing that has happened till that date was i had more and more confidence yeah. in my ability to see these six sigma events these right. weird events that should not be happening right. this free money on the table that right. people are letting go right. and everyone is walking around the table it's puzzling Yeah. <laughs> why humans are like that and when you see that it's so you know weird that you know why is why are others not seeing it right right yeah right right um and i grabbed it yeah. with both my hands my co-founder was working for my previous startup he had mm-hmm. gone out to meet customers and he mm-hmm. came back and i told him hey dude idea changed <laughs> <laughs> you're doing this now yeah. he was mad for some time and then he was like what 1 million users what it shut down <laughs> what how, how? <laughs> so we did that and um, that was my first big hit in my hands like a little yeah 
and i think then then you had uh, you know both google and facebook chasing you marissa mayer coming in with probably 100 million plus check that you know why don't you uh, get merged with us uh, and you guys turned that down and to be candid that blows my mind that you know like what some 23 24 year old kids and both google and facebook are chasing you uh, i remember i think uh, since back then uh, i think uh, mark andresen having to not been he invested in like a little but not coming on the board because zuckerberg was not happy with that right right uh, what like it, it it's very crazy right tell us about that you know what <laughs> was happening uh, how did you guys turn it down what what mark had to say about what like a little could be so like a little again was many firsts for me yeah um from yc being as my dream thing to do yeah and then me turning them down yeah that was a first right. it was sort of like outgrowing yc and like right. outgrowing google right and then a million dollars being the goal of my life like yeah. to make the million dollars like as soon as i can right to turning down like a 100 million dollar acquisition offer right. like that was outgrowing right outgrowing my goals right and you know that was fascinating i had the time of my life doing like a little for the first time um i saw i i was able, you know i saw in my hands that i built something that is directly useful yeah to a lot of people yeah that was exhilarating every point before that there was always like some external bottleneck like the rate at which i work it doesn't matter whether i do something today or tomorrow like it, there were other people right. that were bottlenecks to the rate at which some impact happened right there was a large difference between when i produced something and when him impact actually happened for the mm. first time i had in my hands where i was working day and night right. like the site traffic was growing like crazy i remember me and my co-founder sitting in all night and starting new mysql servers and we were like we doubled the number of mysql servers and we were super happy and um he he my co-founder was like claps you know we scaled it okay tomorrow's traffic it'll it'll, it'll yeah, the site yeah, will yeah. stand and we were like wait how long will this withstand and right. we calculated it to be 3 days right <laughs> so our traffic was doubling every 3 days wow <laughs> so, that's i think the the dream of uh, almost every other founder right <laughs> right 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 yeah. so um that was an insane time we didn't have much sleep uh, we didn't feel amazing we didn't feel anything yeah we were just like we have to do this it is sort of a duty from god right you can you, when you can actually see impact out of your hands like that at the rate at which you can produce it is just uh, it is just there is no feeling like that i've never that that is the one of the the best times of my life was i think like then you guys just just quickly after the launch you were seeing almost 20 million page views and and you know like i think 2 million active users um and i remember you were trying to get all the mercenaries as well to, to <laughs> help scale right and shuman coming into your apartment <laughs> with his friends and you know like figuring out how to make it scale yeah uh, yeah what kind of help you got from you know like un, unexpected help from people when you all were solving such problems dude like uh, we were taking off like crazy yeah that i honestly did not have time to meet with anyone yeah 
and we were in a i remember we were in a one bedroom house mm-hmm. in palo alto mm-hmm. near stanford yeah and and there were all kinds of people showing up yeah like there were college kids who showed up saying they want to join the company there were uh, you know all any of the top investors were showing up yeah. like uh, michael morits from sequoia yeah um um the founder of intuit was yeah. at that place um there was just like and remember for the last 18 months we've been trying to raise any money at all <laughs> nobody would even give us any money yeah. right <laughs> and everyone and their mother now wants to invest in the company and like we just have no time to like give any presentation or like yeah. you know talk to investors even yeah. and i remember when we actually raised money from uh andreessen mm-hmm. um i went in um he already heard about the site like yeah. they had reached out and all i did was i did google.com/analytics and i looked at them like that's it yeah they looked at the graph they said how much how many millions do you want <laughs> <laughs> when you have that growth you don't really need even a pitch deck right <laughs> right yeah exactly um so that was a fascinating fascinating time of time of my life you know um it, we um the site turned out to be a fad and it sort of failed mm. it all happened very very quickly yeah like in 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 9 months we hit our peak mm-hmm. peak traffic yeah. and that's when facebook and google wanted to buy the yeah. buy the thing yeah and um, it, it was the hottest thing in yeah. town it was growing faster than facebook um we had uh, 20 million pages within like the first 6 weeks of launch wow. um and uh, zuck was worried zuckerberg yeah. was pretty worried yeah and he sent um, his cto brett taylor at that time to our house that one bedroom <laughs> um to try and buy the company um um so it, it was definitely a very fascinating time um like mark anderson was uh, our biggest investor and yeah. we, we were talking about hey like um and he was like why would you guys sell this could be the next facebook crazy it's it's growing like crazy like why would you ever sell right um and uh, and we didn't sell you know we decided to take a bet on bet on ourselves yeah and we didn't sell um and uh, you know 9 months later after the traffic crashed and after everything failed yeah we tried to sell yeah. and of course like <laughs> nobody would buy it <laughs> but i would like to ask you did you ever regret that decision of not selling yeah i've definitely thought about that mm-hmm. um you know i was burnt out that like you know after like a little failed and after we tried like a few different things to make it work and we couldn't make it work for you know we tried for the next year or year and a half yeah um i felt like i don't want to ever do startups ever again because in my head hey listen the ideas that i came up with didn't work yeah. and then we copied something yeah that felt like it worked yeah. and then it didn't work again yeah so it's such a long shot like i i don't ever want to do startups again right, right? so i i was feeling super burnt out in that right. moment right. and i definitely felt like fuck we could have sold it and right. we could have been done with it right. right and you know as i sort of and as i sort of uh, was taking a big break in europe post that um and doing other things i kind of realized you know i actually like this i i actually you know the best time in my life was actually when i was doing that stuff yeah and um and i also um realized as an investor um zuck could have sold it too true 
and you know zuckerberg won't be who he is yep. right so i do think as an investor um going long on something that's growing very fast with the data that was available at that time yeah. was absolutely the right thing to do absolutely so you would do the same again i would absolutely do the same again yeah and i was i was able to be dispassionate about it yeah you know after i was in netherlands mm-hmm. it is like a poker where you have limited information and you have to play those cards and what has been um and that break really helped me like think through everything from first principles yeah and not lose the confidence in myself right the thing that's crazy about you know like people around me um at that time and many people go went through this experience with me right yeah. and a lot of them end up ended up like sort of taking safer jobs or whatever and i was like right after that all through my life i've never sort of taken a high paying the high paying job right. i've always been deep in equity yeah. i've always had like you know millions of dollars in like paper money yeah that i did not realize yeah. and i continue to have like right. a billion or no billion dollars no. <laughs> in paper money yeah. that i did not i did not realize yeah. and i've been comfortable being the optimist yeah even though bet after bet like turns to zero yeah i've just been comfortable being the optimist right. because i just knew that that was the right poker move yeah i could lose a few moves but it will come because the expected value yeah the math is right right no fascinating i think uh, that that's very profound <laughs> uh, that you know you you use the right framework you use the you know right uh, mechanism and you will win some you will lose some right uh, but that is how the game is played yes right amazing so uh, i think uh, and i also realized mm-hmm. that i love playing yeah if i if i'm not doing things that make people around me go what the fuck are you crazy yeah then i feel like my peak is behind me yeah and I it was a part also, of that that's also very interesting point about most of the you know founders who have been at it for long enough often it's a common belief that people feel that you know it they are running for a certain goal right when you play a game you celebrate when you win you feel a little bad when you lose but you really do not play for the win or lose you play to play because you enjoy playing right 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 and i think that's what is with most of the startups as well uh, you do it just because you enjoy doing it right right no very interesting and i think uh, so like a little was of course uh, you know uh, at least in my view it's a story that you know there could be a movie on <laughs> uh, hopefully one day um and then you were part of building zenefits right which ended up being a 4 billion plus insurtech and then it faced some issues tell us a little bit about that why did you you know decide that you know uh, as the next your sigma 6 event you would take the bet of zenefits so i was in netherlands right um after like a little fail i was super burnt out uh, got married um and uh, my wife was working in netherlands i was the house husband just sitting and chilling at home <laughs> um and uh, i missed the action mm-hmm. i realized okay like i i actually really liked it even though it all went to zero mm-hmm. it all failed i really kind of liked it yeah. and i wanted to get back into the action so i was thinking okay what do i do now like i don't want to start a company it seems like it'll it's all going bust yeah you know it's um, 
it's all a huge long shot yeah so and i also realized like how special things that work are yeah you can't just like decide to start a company and start one yeah um you have, you know the the companies that work in a big way are actually six sigma events themselves so what i decided to do was to like notice them and join them yeah way before anyone else could notice it yeah and not try to be a founder Mm-hmm. and i also didn't want to do anything in consumer internet given i just burnt my hands on it thanks to like a little <laughs> <laughs> thanks to like a little the the painful thing was you felt like people wanted it hmm. you felt like you were yeah. creating an impact yeah. like you sp- spent a few years of your life and yeah. it turns out like people just lost interest yeah. so that was very painful you know the opposite of that seemed like enterprise software <laughs> <laughs> um where people don't leave all that often yeah. um zenefits was the fastest growing company in the world at that time yeah. i realized like growth was the drug that i was addicted to hypergrowth was just special yeah where you can compress many many years of life and life experiences into a few short months right. and that's what i got from like a little and that's what i was hoping to live relive again mm-hmm. and zenefits was the fastest growing company in the world at that time it went from 0 to 50 million dollars in arr in 20 months wow has never happened before and that's pure sas pure sas wow pure sas has never happened before um there are still uh, only a handful of companies which have done that indeed um like less than 10 in the world yeah um so it was totally a six sigma event yeah i knew you can't recreate it it doesn't happen all that often right and and i had to join it so we had a lot of common investors y combinator anderson horwitz um founder was from chennai and um, we spoke we hit it off and uh, i got a job as the director of engineering over there i joined um when they were valued at like 500 million dollars and uh, within 6 months or 9 months um the valuation sort of 10x into like 4 billion or something yeah yeah i think that was the investment from the khosla ventures that that was uh, yeah that was led by uh, like the big public funds yeah fidelity and fidelity people like that invested led a massive round yeah. like yeah yeah and um i was feeling very smart <laughs> up uh, 8x or 10x sitting on shit ton of paper money yeah and um, you know feeling very smart and in another 6 months <laughs> the company blew up yeah it um, it ran into a bunch of controversies yeah. um and uh, the ceo the founder was fired yeah um so peter conrad i think uh, then he became your co-founder at tripling right parker conrad yeah i'm so sorry yeah parker yeah so conrad. he he was yeah. he was fired and i thought that company's over yeah like the game is done yeah and um like i worked with parker and like he had a very clear idea maze on the territory indeed he knew every turn that you could take in the space and what would what would be the result of those turns yeah and like once the company lost him and it was sort of trying to not innovate and trying mm-hmm. to just like optimize on its cash flows and mm-hmm. stuff i knew like the next day it was over mm-hmm. and i and i quit yeah and i quit yeah um and i also knew that no one else is going to do this mm. 
like the competitors were just trying to just catch up to what Zenfits had done. Yeah. Zenfits had passed all future innovation. Mm-hmm. And it's almost imploding. Mm. And it was this sort of giant 100 billion market. Yeah. that is waiting to be taken right and no one else is going to take it right because the big companies are already super stretched by just competing with zenfits zenfits is super stretched it's going to implode and as a startup to go and build that it requires severe amounts of capital like tens of millions of dollars to build that big a product to build the vision right that parker wanted to build at zenfits right right So I knew there was an opportunity it's almost like Google implodes because of some self goals that people made inside yeah. and after it implodes there is a huge terrain yeah. that nobody is rushing to take right so I knew it was a huge opportunity and I reached out to Parker and said hey we should we should start a let's start a company and Parker was like dude I'm I'm so fucking done with startups I'm never starting a company again <laughs> 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 you just few years back that's right <laughs> i'm going to europe you actually went to europe oh wow <laughs> that seems to be common you know path <laughs> so he was in europe for like two weeks three weeks um, i actually mailed him back saying i'm sure you're going to start a company let's do this yeah i didn't hear back mm-hmm. he actually left to europe mm-hmm. so he was there in europe for like two weeks three weeks mm-hmm. um and then in the press the investors and everyone was just blaming all the failures on him yeah i remember that time that was pretty bad actually yeah yeah and uh, he was under an nda so he couldn't talk back to the press yeah. and they you know the investors could talk all they want yeah. and he couldn't say his side of the story and it's pretty unfortunate that you know an innovator like parker you know you just have to sit back and you know take all the things which are being thrown at you that's right but but i i would give it to him you know such a strength uh, to pass through that right right yeah. he was you know there was no i mean like he was severely depressed i can imagine at that time yeah you know he was uh, sitting in his room playing video games all day he didn't want to do anything yeah he was so tired yeah and when people started really bashing him like when the coo he had hired you know he personally hired when that guy sort of backstabbed and turned yeah. against him yeah. and like everyone was bashing him yeah um then there is you know he can't talk to the press even yeah then there's only one way to talk now and which is which is to start a company to start and prove it fascinating so he said let's do this wow and that's how rippling got started 5 and years ago that's that's so inspiring amazing so then uh, you uh, parker uh, how did you guys land on to that you know what you want to build at rippling and which eventually has become a decacon right a uh, super massive successful company uh, you guys painted entire bangalore uh, with with the branding <laughs> uh, you know uh, boards uh, uh, calling talking about that engineers run rippling i think uh, and that uh, i would i might speculate that might be rooted in a lot of dna established by you that you know engineers run the business it's so, like would love to kind of maybe push you a little in the direction that how did you build that engineering culture um, at rippling at zenefits what kind of structures what kind of you know goal setting org structure etc facilitated that or you know setting that culture in the team yeah so again like you know just sort of connecting it back yeah. to the six sigma yeah topic that we're talking about yeah 
like rippling founding is an obvious six sigma event mm-hmm. in my head mm-hmm. like how often does a google implode due yeah. to self calls it's had, it had nothing to do with the market right it it was like internal mistakes in the company right and you know if google does self implode a hundred other startups will rush to take its place yeah and i was looking around nobody yeah nobody was rushing to take its place yeah. it's crazy it's insane and like okay if parker is starting a company um why would anyone work at zenefits and not try to join this new company yeah where they can get like, like a lot more stock yeah and it had like a lot better odds of succeeding yeah um it was the sort of mother of all no brainers so 2000 people worked at zenefits yeah three people reached out to parker crazy <laughs> and i just had to be the best of three mm-hmm. so three was my competition set right <laughs> to be the co-founder to be the co-founder of rippling rippling yeah um so did parker tell you that there were three who reached out to him yeah i knew it's a small click right okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and the other two are doing very well now by the way you know all of them you know the other two have founded companies that are worth hundreds of millions of dollars wow. so you know the folks who see clearly see yeah. the world clearly for what it is yeah um in a world of like just entire madness and inertia where everyone wants to keep the next day same as the previous day the ones who are just able to zoom out and see that no 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 like see it for what it is yeah they are all doing pretty well actually um so that was another six sigma event where i'm just like i was convinced i was picking up a billion dollars on the floor In yeah. fact if you talk to the early employees that I was talking and recruiting mm-hmm. you know you're talking about engineering and recruiting yeah. Yeah. and if you talk to the early employees at Rippling I told them you know I knew I I knew I picked up a billion dollars from the floor it it was so clear to me it was so obvious to me that it was the easiest billion right <laughs> <laughs> that I have ever made yeah. um so that is again fascinating you know it is just all about being around places where six sigma events right congregate right and noticing them when they happen right and changing your life for it right people thought i was crazy like when i when i started rippling i just had like a newborn son like a newborn baby yeah and people in my family could not understand why i would why why would start a company right and it was all consuming even even today it like you know the times i do miss you know i do sort of miss hey i didn't spend a ton of time yeah with my little baby you know i i had to sort of start a company yeah but i knew this these things don't come back it's not like it's you know i don't get to plan every aspect of my life perfectly it's the when six sigma events come you notice yeah. and you pull the trigger yeah and also these events are sort of like congregating yeah like zenefits was around yc yeah. and like this massive like there are waves and mini waves the big wave is sort of internet right and the mini wave that it unlocks is like y combinator yeah, yeah. and the mini wave that unlocks is like you know companies around it like right. like a little right. and zenefits right and then rippling right so i was just at a really good time and place yeah. with all of these yeah, yeah 
no very 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 interesting uh, and if i further double click on you know the the kind of tech teams that you built at rippling for example when you left it was already a fairly large team 250 engineers or so right and of course at that scale it's very hard to you know when when it's a team of five engineers you don't need processes you don't need culture right like everyone is in the same room they just get shit done right and right. And, and you ship fast you deliver but then maintaining the same amount of focus impact uh at a size when it is a 250 you know smart engineers with you how did you manage that what were your some of your key learnings or you know design choices i'm sure you know for all the founders uh, you know this journey is so full of learnings right uh, i often say that you know like uh, running a startup is my the most satisfying thing about it is learning new things right so what were your learnings while building a high performance tech team uh, at rippling yeah um there were lots there were definitely lots um rippling was the most highest density of talent team that i ever worked on and, and it continues to be today as create. well definitely one of the highest density talent teams totally totally right. and in the beginning um it was just the early team was full of ex founders yeah and ironically they were the guys who were able to clearly see the opportunity yeah it was just obvious yeah and we had like so many xyc founders yeah. on the on the early team mm-hmm. and it was also like a survival necessity for mm-hmm. the company mm-hmm. because our product pitch was that there is a lot of vertical software right. like vertical business units that need to be get built and we can bundle all of them yeah. and sell it as all in one yeah so it was a necessity for us to create a lot of businesses inside of rippling yeah and who better to create them than the ex founders yeah uh specifically the ctos yeah um so that created like a great culture like that created a lot of sub startups in the parent startup so even though you might be working in a 25% team mm-hmm. you might just be working in a startup of like three three engineers or something yeah. so it was very important for us to maintain um like a very high velocity mm-hmm. and um we also had the hindsight um the um hindsight bias like the benefit of hindsight mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where we had a lot of learnings from zenefits because this is the sort of v2 that we were building yeah. um we were able to be strongly opinionated yeah. and make some technical choices mm-hmm. that gave us a lot of edge give us some examples of that yeah so um at zenefits as products were growing mm-hmm. different business units ui started diverging mm-hmm. which you which you you might naturally imagine yeah now because integration is the product yeah. consistency in ui was a was an important requirement it's a business need so we were able to spend like the month parker the only thing he did for the first month was to put together like every sort of co- ui component that that might be useful yeah like we had like a flow component where like you know like you know this was type form before there was type form yeah. right so we spent you know parker spent a bunch of time putting that together on a tech on the technical side we had an opinionated stack mm-hmm. no microservices it was a monolith yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know we had uh, we had um, um how to run background jobs how to um 
um like how to draw the boundary mm-hmm. between the core hr model on top of which every business unit works mm-hmm. on um so we had like very um a decent sort of set of architectural components yeah. that everyone needs to use we were mm-hmm. very opinionated yeah. you can't pick another sort of different architecture or whatever right mm-hmm. so um what that made um so in practice what actually happened was we sort of hired like these great engineers right who were top coder you know top rank in india yeah. Yeah. you know acmicpc world finalists you know we were hiring all these like amazing yeah. engineers yeah. and we were telling them they can't make engineering choices mm-hmm. in the company it's mm-hmm. all made mm-hmm. you just have to follow the standard stack mm-hmm. and all their brain power you know so we hired for high cpu mm-hmm. you know the brain that can perform yeah. high teraflops per second yeah um and all those teraflops are directed at on one thing and one thing only which is gaining market share wow so we were very opinionated no i think that's that's very very profound and which is a might be seen as a very big divergence from often how many other startups treat look at their tech talent that here you are saying that the goal of these high potential crazy programmers coders was capturing more market share not coming up with a better architecture right right and i think that's very very differentiated and very very profound thing uh very fascinating right yeah. right and uh, as we scaled so you were asking about um the challenges that arose right mm-hmm. as we scaled um i did not scale like i was not good at my job mm-hmm. so i was really good you know i think when there were 25 engineers 15 mm-hmm. engineers five engineers yeah. i was great yeah and when there were like 100 200 you know i was just like not doing a good job mm-hmm. and things will break everywhere mm-hmm. and i would just be frustrated mm-hmm. hey why didn't you think like this mm-hmm. and and that was sort of like a repetitive cycle mm-hmm. and my co-founder was frustrated with me mm-hmm. i was sort of frustrated with people below me like why aren't you behaving like owners yeah so basically you were mostly firefighting every day i was firefighting every day yeah. you know How it did was you long that? days um and uh, you know eventually we sort of got someone to run engineering who mm-hmm. knew what they were doing mm-hmm. and i learned a lot from that experience actually um the the biggest thing that i learned was um the value of this thing called culture and stuff mm-hmm. i used to be you know i'm like i'm a zero to one guy and like i i didn't sort of i thought like culture and all that is like jargons that big companies use yeah. to sound good yeah. to look good yeah. um and i didn't see the value in it mm-hmm. and then what i sort of actually saw was you know the first prince so i i was able to experience it from first principles when you yeah. start something new right you know you sort of experience you get to run the ab test for what happens if you if there is if yeah. you don't have it yeah and uh, and i you know the thing that i learned was like as you hire more and more smart people like when you're growing really fast you don't have a ton of time to bring everyone on and train them yeah right and you know um you're growing like we were growing on a range teams like 2x 3x a year right yeah so the average age of uh, an engineer in the company is like 3 months or 4 months right so what did they know about yeah. any of this stuff yeah. um so you don't have a ton of bandwidth to train them right and often what you're doing as a result as a coping mechanism is you're hiring more senior and higher sort of experienced people who don't need that much training they yeah. come in and they can perform right yeah. and then what happens if you do that um is you're sort of hiring people to drive your car for you and you're hiring like pretty good drivers 
by default they'll mm-hmm. make by default like very rational choices those are the right hires to make right mm-hmm. and once you do that you do that a few times then you notice that your org is becoming really slow mm-hmm. and you notice that um you're sort of starting to operate more and more and more like a big company mm-hmm. like i call it mean reversion mm-hmm. like any outlier startup is founded <clears throat> on some contrarian insight right and a startup sort of starts at like several standard deviations of right. the mean right and when you get like normal people in the company right who are like who make like really good normal decisions the company tends towards the normal right the Which unique the identity or that intuition right. starts getting lost that's that's that lost process. yeah that's lost so it starts behaving more and more like a really big company like google or something yeah um because those are the safe defaults for a reason yeah they just work in most circumstances right. and then there's nothing differentiated about yourself right. the company and that is why it was so frustrating i was fighting that mean reversion hmm. by saying you know if you just cared more yeah maybe this wouldn't have happened right. right and i realized that's not the way to fight it that is super blunt weapon you know so what you what in retrospect i realize the job of someone like the leader who's scaling is actually or you know the founder who's scaling actually is actually to look inside his brain mm-hmm. run a debug pdb trace mm-hmm. on my own brain mm-hmm. of like hey why do i think we should ha- we should have an opinionated stack mm-hmm. why should other people not develop their own technology mm-hmm. why is that and why are we willing to pay a big cost for this mm-hmm. contrarian opinion right because anytime you have a contrarian opinion there are some real costs right and to avoid those costs is why like reasonably smart people mean revert right so you have to like trace through your brain mm-hmm. and ask like why is this the right decision for us right and why are we willing to pay these obvious costs in front of us like engineers won't join you right because uh, you know they can't build cool architecture right they need to sort of work on business right. or something right um and that's still worth it like right. you know you stand for something and you're willing to die for something yeah and that's still worth it for our business why is that right. so you need to sort of like make a case uh not just a case but also like why you personally think that yeah so you have to and there is not a lot you can communicate right in the culture so culture is like few nuggets of statements that can penetrate from you know penetrate a large org right where they can just like that is something that they can remember right and use as frameworks to make right. decisions when they're alone and you can't communicate a lot they won't remember a lot true so you have to distill it down right to a few things that we do differently here right and why that matters right so a lot of this is about just like tracing what goes on looking internally first of all right you know and tracing what goes on inside and exposing the software yeah and installing that software in other brains that making you hire it, yeah making those intuitions and the insights more transferable right so distill it down in a way debug your own brain right. trace it right uh, how you are making those intuitive decisions right because of course uh, you know a large team can 
not be dependent on you right they cannot fall back on you mm-hmm. you have to be able to transition that to and that is fundamentally i think what the culture is right right exactly fascinating so how did you do that or if you could uh, you know give us some examples that you know what were some of such uh, transferable or if i can talk you know ask you that what were the first principles that you distilled down uh, which you passed on to the rest of the team at tripling and which enabled that yeah definitely i mean the um we spoke about the opinionated stack thing yeah. Yeah. um one of the important culture statements we had was like um we solve big problems hmm. um we sort of bet more on the fat startup not on the lean startup mm-hmm. by that we mean like you know we, when we launch a new product we really sort of like do a high production work hmm. um like we don't ab test mm-hmm. like um we're not sort of looking for guidance from the market mm-hmm. we have an opinion so you build on those insights the opinions which are built on the insights right and then you do not really need the ab test right right i think we live in a world where all the arguments generally boil down to get okay, let's do an ab test yeah but that's pretty i think in sometimes it's not the smart tool right, right. It's, it's 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 pretty uh, if i may say it's a very simpleton tool right right but if you have deep insight you just run with that right right interesting also like we are actually very consciously built i mean the unique thing about the rippling dna is that it is built for 0 to 1 we are actually very very good at 0 to 1 mm-hmm. because there are so many different business units mm-hmm. that are founded inside of rippling mm-hmm. that made it work it's mm-hmm. a day one skill that we have yeah. and we do a lot to protect the new 0 to 1 babies mm-hmm. like the new business units that get formed mm-hmm. from what we call the tyranny of the functional organizations yeah so like you know your legal department wants everyone to you know follow a lot to the book yeah. your uh, customer support department wants everyone to produce great documentation your sales department wants x and y and z yeah. to the extent where you know when you do a zero to one when you can if you can isolate that part of the company yeah. from the tyranny of the sort of uh, functional units right um that sort of helps you right um keep that zero to one dna yeah yeah no that's really really important just like you know in a forest with really big trees if you have a bunch of functional units which are super heavy or few business units which have grown so big yeah. it often becomes you know very hard or close to impossible for a new idea to kind of you know grow in that space right. uh but it's super important because if that doesn't happen the entire forest will die one day right uh so i think creating like uh, in in at scaler we call them loon shots right Right. right that fine you know there might be few business units which are chasing big targets where just maybe a single digit percent might create millions of dollars worth value right but despite that it's important that we keep taking the new bets hmm. uh, yes. and i think there have been examples nokia was one example which lost the entire market share because they didn't innovate right right no no very very fascinating and, um, and the key thing is actually to do that there are some some people in the company who will get upset you know it, yeah. it, what that means is the customer support team like there are costs to that yeah what that means is you know the customer support team is sort of doesn't know right how to support like a new product right you know there are there are some costs to that right so you know very early on it's worth paying yeah very very fascinating on a closing note um we talked about different six sigma events that you were able to identify in the past 
and which you were able to leverage to to create a massive value for yourself and the world right if i ask you to spill the beans and tell our audience that as of today year 2022 what are some of these six sigma events that you see happening around you right and i'm sure it's not a zero sum game right like more people who latch on to it the more value could get created there totally if you can tell us about what are the things that you see today that could become you know really really big needle movers in the world out there in coming years absolutely man i think the big wave um that is just transforming society extremely fast and the wave that you know we all rode um perhaps like every listener in this podcast rode is the internet yeah um internet is just transformative to society right and a natural extension of the internet which is sort of financialization of the internet where the internet has like a native money or mm-hmm, a coin mm-hmm, is crypto mm-hmm. right and uh, i think that is the y combinator of our age mm-hmm. that is where this the most ambitious or the smartest people are aggregating today yeah back in the days it was y combinator that is where the best brains in the world came together yeah and today the most optimistic place in the world is actually crypto right that is where the best talents are and that is where the biggest impact is getting created right in and i think internet is just like massive and huge for humanity yeah like if you really really zoom out and ask um what are the most significant events that happened to life on earth yeah you might say there is single celled organisms multi celled organisms life came to land rise of human beings yeah and right after that an alien would say when we all connected our brains mm-hmm. with at the speeds of light through fibers mm-hmm. so that all our ideas regardless of where we are could yeah. just like, get exchanged instantly at the speed of light yeah. like biological brains started having digital wires and yeah. connecting it together yeah. all over the world i think that is just massive that is the most important thing after sort of rise of human beings yeah. that is happening to biological life itself yeah and the transformations that it's going to cause are just like unseen right and the spear the tip of the spear of that transformation today is crypto mm-hmm. and we're going to see massive rewrites of the internet first of mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. when internet got formed it was fairly easy sitting in 99 98 mm-hmm. to foresee what it's going to do yeah. to humanity yeah you know if you take any segment in the world and ask what's going what is going to be that seg how is that going to, that segment going to behave in the age of the internet if you asked how our taxi is going to work yeah you would trivially come up with uber right how our hotels going to work you will trivially come up with airbnb right um how our sh- retail shops going to work you will trivially come up with amazon and people did come up with those things right right and you know it takes a long time for those things to become true right crypto is in in a similar moment moment mm-hmm. right now mm-hmm. where you can just take pretty much any sector of the economy and ask yeah. what is it going to look like in the age of crypto mm-hmm. and you would trivially come up with the right answers yeah it is that billion dollars lying down on the floor that nobody is picking yeah it is just like everyone knows yeah and yet they don't know right and this is the only thing that matters this is the only thing that's worth working on right um and you know this this internet thing is just like insanely massive right and what internet created was the um consolidation of the middleman 
so mm-hmm. back in the days we we sort of had an imagination where internet is going to kill the middleman yeah the travel agent yeah the hotel booking guy all those guys are going to die right but instead what it did was it consolidated yeah. the middleman into um <clears throat> into the booking.coms of yeah. the world yeah or the facebook yeah the newspapers got consolidated yeah. right and crypto is sort of like decent you know like and these guys have become monopolies yeah they have like huge amounts of power right. so internet um where there is the best product can just like take over yeah all the users yeah because the marginal cost of producing of adding another extra user right to that product is zero yep so then what does humanity do the best product gets all the users yeah right and that's the sort of end state right is that these guys just become monopolies yeah and that's where we are living through yeah and crypto is like a nice tweak on top of it mm-hmm. why are these guys monopolies mm-hmm. because they have like a database called mysql mm-hmm. on top of which all these users are living yeah and you know if you if you think about amazon for example there is buyers there is sellers and there is some inventory all this yeah. stuff is living in a database called yeah. mysql yeah and because amazon has root privileges to that database yeah. they can change the rules of the game anytime yeah, they want yeah. and they can tax it as much as they want they can tax it as much as they want because they have root privileges to the yeah, database yeah. what if you took the database and decentralized it mm-hmm. like what if there are like a million masters running all over the world yeah. which is together agreeing on the state of the database yeah and that's called a blockchain yeah so i personally believe the mysqls are out for disruption yeah. into the blockchain mm-hmm. and in that new model or architecture you don't yeah. need like centralized companies the rules can't change that easily yeah. and you can build on top of it yeah and the smartest people in the world are working on that right i mean even if i think about like the simplest thing back home is like how will rippling get disrupted mm-hmm. in the age of blockchains mm-hmm. right um if you think about it like you know you have a rippling app store mm-hmm. and I think rippling is going to be worth a lot of money. You know, I think rippling could be worth like a trillion trillion dollars. Yeah. It is the Microsoft of SaaS. Yeah. Where any SaaS software that anyone develops pays a tax to rippling. Mhm. So as people use more and more SaaS applications, like rippling sort of is the index fund of yeah. SaaS. Yeah. They all pay a tax to rippling. Yeah. It's like and uh, rippling has insane monopolies there. Right. If it were on the blockchain, you know if this mysql was decentralized yeah you don't need to talk to the rippling bd to build on top of it right you can just like build for the apis right you don't need to um you know in case rippling got hacked or something your mysql all your data that you put in this rippling mysql assuming that it's all a secret yeah. it all comes out like yeah. it's all um and rippling knows this you know they're doing all that they can to prevent it right but you know it's not a if right it's a when yeah it's a when yeah like everyone gets hacked Absolutely. like facebook gets hacked yeah you know uber gets hacked yeah so the, you know just a much superior architecture is like yeah. complete decentralization where there is like a, a host of mysql that's running out there the the apis are all like just smart contracts on the blockchain right and uh, you know if you're running payroll for your company you have a you have an app on your phone yeah which has the sort of decryption key right to the data that's living on the blockchain right 
and people within your company alone have the decryption key so even right. if rippling wants like we ourselves can't see the salary of your employees right that's just we don't have root access to right. that database right you know that's just like a much better world right. where people can build on top of it right without any fear that the taxes are going to increase right. like as a result of that like you know the you know it becomes more investable yeah you know the big fear is just like you know if you're on top of someone else's platform right can you even become a big company yeah um so blockchain really sort of removes that it removes all kinds of centralization right and uh, internet is naturally a consolidating force right and as a result of that if you don't want monopolies you have to decentralize and internet is sort of rearchitecting itself right right towards this new future no very fascinating and i think uh, often it's a little bit of uh, misconception that people feel that uh, blockchain is just about crypto but it's much more than that right right and that just the just the crypto or or the bitcoin or the ethereum part of that has led to more speculative uh you know nature of it but the blockchain at its core is much more fundamental technology or you know kind of framework on which so much more could be built right i think you know crypto and blockchains are actually totally they're sort of go hand in hand like that yeah. is sort of the fundamental mm-hmm. disruption mm-hmm. you can think of like what is the fundamental disruption of blockchain um it it is this decentralized mysql database and as a result of that it is internet having a native currency yeah if you have a decentralized mysql database yeah how do you decide yeah who gets to write to it right you need to run an auction yeah like if it's capitalism at its mm-hmm. finest mm-hmm. and to run an auction you need an economy mm-hmm. and for that economy you need a coin mm-hmm. right so if http request or like every request to this database you yeah. you have to charge money because yeah. otherwise there will be ddosing and spam infrastructure yeah yeah and so on yeah so um the foundational innovation of crypto is actually financialization of the internet very interesting everything is going to get financialized right and there are going to be like massively liquid markets right um where uh, these game theoretical dynamics are just built in mm-hmm. like there was um like you can imagine building uber on the blockchain yeah. where uh where you know the equivalent of that is a company called uniswap mm-hmm. that is one of the biggest companies that got built on the yeah. blockchain yeah. um and the way it works is they're trying to create one of the largest exchanges in the world yeah and it probably is already a la- one of the largest exchanges i mean i if i i think it sort of trades maybe 10% of the volume of nasdaq today Yeah so it's actually insanely it's big pretty, many pe- yeah. many people don't know about it right um and and when you um um create a company the 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 way i think about creating a company is actually you're sort of creating a ponzi scheme mm-hmm. it is a new way to organize humanity mm-hmm. right so for example um you can imagine um let's take the case of uber right so travis kalanick um needs to sell to the world yeah. why they have to sort of reorganize in this manner yeah. and the and the people um the participants in this uh pitch are actually potential drivers potential riders right. potential employees potential right. um press right. investors right. all these people right. the more these people believe if all of them believe then right. uber becomes like the new future the new right. reality right, right. um And, and that's a big change in a very fundamental way right. in the old world when say travis had to go raise funds he will have to go pitch to some 
some sovereign, some private equity, right. but very few people control that entire dynamics. Correct. And in this new world, you know, every one becomes a participant. As you said, it's a, it's a driver, it's a it's it's a consumer, it's a it's a tax you know vehicle owner, fleet owner. Anyone could be participating. That's right. That, that definitely changes it in a very very fundamental way. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So what actually happens on the blockchain is that this data is all public. Yeah. So anyone, every second, investors will be watching how much trade volume Uniswap has. Yeah. And the more the volume it has, the more the price of Uniswap goes up yeah. because it makes spread on the exchange, right? Right. And then more the price of Uniswap that goes up, Uniswap had a scheme, incentivization scheme, where if you were to deposit your assets in Uniswap, they will pay you some portion of their company. Like, mm. let's say 10% of the equity of Uniswap is mm -hmm. paid out mm -hmm. to anyone who deposits their funds inside Uniswap. Mm -hmm. So if the price of Uniswap tokens go up, yeah. you get a higher incentive to deposit more funds into Uniswap. Yeah. And if more funds are invested in Uniswap, yeah. anyone who wants to, you can trade more volume on top of Uniswap. So more traders come in. Because more traders come in, you make more trading fees because of which the price of Uniswap goes up, because of which more people come to deposit their money, right. because of which more traders can come. And so it's and that's a cycle that goes on and on. In, a, in, in the Uber's case, that cycle is sort of rate limited by people discovering it. Right. You know, Travis going and pitching to people every once in nine months or something, right. press having a certain frequency with which it's willing to write about Uber. Right. So it's sort of rate limited by all kinds of real world constraints. Right. But if you sort of take out those rate limits mm -hmm. and operate at the speed of light on the right. fiber, yeah. where anyone can look at the blockchain and see what the state is right. at any second, right. the human consensus gets built in an extremely short time span. Right. Like Uniswap, in fact, gathered 10 billion in assets under management within yeah. the first 18 months of launch. I think that would have been one of the fastest growth um, exchange it is. ever it in is. the history of mankind. Totally. It, that was just, that blew my mind. Like right. then I knew right. that this is actually the new YC. Wow. So that's the new Six Sigma that you have identified. That's absolutely the new Six yeah. Sigma. And probably in the next decade, you know, half a decade, a decade, two decades, we might see the real impact of that. Right, right. Fascinating. Like when I, I sort of, when I was doing like a little, mm -hmm. and I was sort of, um, it, when it was sort of not working, I stumbled into the Bitcoin white paper. This was 2012. Mm -hmm. I had like $10,000 to my name at that time. Okay. And when I read it, I knew this was not really even a Six Sigma event. This is like a Nine Sigma event or wow. something. That was 2012? 2012. Okay. And I put half my money, like $5,000, and bought 50 Bitcoins. Wow. How much is that worth today? And what have been the peak value? <laughs> the, the, I mean, it is worth a lot. It is, it is worth <laughs> a lot. I don't even know. And the insane thing is that just like I outgrew Google and I outgrew YC. Yeah. And I, you know, I actually even outgrew that bet. You know, yeah. the insane thing is my net worth grew way faster yeah. than even Bitcoin grew. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so that, that was, uh, you know, that was just super fascinating to yeah, me. But yeah, owning 50 Bitcoins is, is, is crazy. It's mad. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and you're saying you have outgrown that, you know, you don't track it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> crazy um and you know i i sort of definitely realized like crypto is, there is a new thing that's happening here i originally thought it was just bitcoin but i soon when uniswap happened 
I knew it was like way more than that. Yeah. Like this is just going to transform social organization. Like the biggest thing that I learned through all these six sigma events, following and tracking all of this, um, is it sort of keeps coming back to the question that Peter Thiel asks in his book Zero to One: What is the bottleneck to wealth creation yeah. or like human progress? Mm-hmm. What is the bottleneck? Yeah. You know. there is one argument you could make that it's all about um you know why does why does all the most important company in the world get created within a 30 mile radius called silicon valley yeah like why is that happening yeah um and um some might say that's where all the venture capitalists that's where all the risk taking um money is yeah some might say that's where all the talent is you know the best mm-hmm. in the world sort mm-hmm. of go there to start companies mm-hmm. um there is some truth to all of that uh some might say the world is sort of limited by opportunity there are only a few opportunities and um the capital and talent are not really bottlenecks yeah. you know whatever opportunities are people build for it mm-hmm. and the case for that is china yeah like they didn't let any external money in right they didn't let any external talent in right but they still have like a fairly sophisticated mm-hmm. facebook or whatever absolutely yeah so they didn't miss out too much right yeah. that's the case for maybe it is limited by opportunity yeah but clearly something is changing you know we all see you know the rate of innovation right now is just like way higher than at any time in the past yeah and this um um this sort of like directly sort of leads me to believe like my sort of mental model right now is the rate limiter is actually optimism and faith and belief and that is sort of my working hypothesis why for why all of this is um um what, you know what the bottleneck is so yeah that's the, that's that's very very profound again you know like these nuggets that i have been able to catch on to in between uh, that uh, you know the and i can actually relate with that as well you know often we say that it's the capital which is a rate limiting factor or we say it's the talent which is a rate limiting factor or one say that you know it's opportunities but interestingly probably cutting across all of these it's the optimism and and believe uh that great things would happen and i think i i can connect that back to you know the events of like a little that you were talking about that turning down a 100 million dollar company and after 6 months it no one willing to buy it for anything right right and despite that that thread of optimism that you know we would be able to build something which creates a lot of value um you know like even if capital is available or not available uh if if talent is available or not available but people who have the optimism eventually end up creating a lot of value right and also it is always fascinating to me that like all a lot of successful startups are kind of like cults yeah this is this was again mental model introduced by peter thiel mm-hmm. um where like the the some of these learnings is also like from the cohort that were around me at that time yeah. like the yc founders yeah. you know they've all gone on to do like amazing things yeah. um carry tan or like you know the folks who were around yeah. at that time who yeah. were who stuck around right the six sigma event called yc right. they all got more and more bold yeah as time went on yeah. um like i mean i remember sam altman being like this crazy guy you know when he made like 100 million dollars he put 10 million into this new company called open ai yeah and it was like a non-profit thing that he was yeah. doing he thought agi was going to crack yeah and i thought like that's crazy he's just like <laughs> lost his mind yeah you know and um, more recently 
I met with Sam. You know, he came home once for dinner, mm-hmm. and the backdrop is he put like three hundred million into a company, into a nuclear fusion, yeah, reactor, yeah, and uh, you know, he was like, nuclear fusion is working now. Oh wow! <laughs> and that was like, holy fuck! Like, you know, how bold have we grown? Did you tell Sam that you know, have you gone crazy? Why would you put three hundred million that, dollars in a nuclear f- fusion company? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I I told him, dude, I thought you were crazy when you did OpenAI. Yeah. Now OpenAI is working. Yeah. Like crazy, you know. Yeah. OpenAI is making like hundred million ARR or something, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's worth like ten billion dollars. and you know now he's doing this 300 mil into a nuclear react nuclear fusion reactor and yeah. i thought that was like fucking crazy yeah and then he told me a story you know i asked him why the fuck would you put 300 million in a nuclear reactor you could have you know you could have gotten almost the same amount of equity for like a tiny amount of the money yeah like why would you do this right you know and he only had like 500 million in his bank mm-hmm. so that's his you know he put 300 million in a single company right mm-hmm. so you know he's doing pretty crazy stuff yeah, yeah. um and he's getting bolder as time goes yeah. right like all of us are getting bolder yeah you guys are getting bolder you guys <laughs> are doing some crazy stuff now yeah um so the story that sam told me was when openai was founded and he did that 10 million check he took the team to meet elon musk mm-hmm. and elon musk understood only half mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. of what they were talking about mm-hmm. they were talking about they were showing a chart of moore's law mm-hmm. where if you throw more and more cpu on these models yeah like you know they were getting smarter and smarter so it it almost followed a predictable curve mm-hmm. and they had predictions on what they could do mm-hmm. at like how much dollar value of cpu that you throw at it mm-hmm. and the cpu itself was you know was diminishing in price yeah. right yeah. so so the pitch was this is just inevitable that computers are going to get insanely smart yeah. if you throw cpu at it mm-hmm. and elon maybe understood like half of what they were saying but they, he sort of got the bigger picture yeah and elon and and they were saying you know we want to try this we want to try that we have some ideas and elon sort of gathered them around and looked them in the eye and said you know if you want, if you if you use the word try one more time you should quit hmm i think this is the most important thing that is going to change humanity yeah I want to put fifty million dollars into the company right now for ten percent of the company. Hmm. And he wrote the check. And you know, and again, like, why should Elon value this company at like five hundred million? Yeah, he could have valued it at two fifty million. That would have yep. been just as crazy. Yep, he could have valued it at hundred million. No one else Absolutely. was giving money at yep. that time at hundred yep. million price. Yep. So what is Elon doing there? and yet if you think about it it is one of the best investments of venture capital yeah some 500 million it's now worth 10 or 20 billion yeah so what is elon doing there what elon is doing is actually the oldest trick in the book of how you create cults hmm you open your hand take a knife and you cut it and you spill blood hmm and what elon is saying you see my blood this pro- this is worth it to me yeah is it fucking worth it to yeah. you are you mad enough right now to go get this yeah we don't try we're going to win yeah that is what he's doing i that, think that 50 million dollar that elon put in or the 300 million dollar check that the sam wrote to the fusion company is you know the spill of their blood that's right but i'm willing to go down with it 
that's right do you believe in this, this or right. not that's right yeah and that is the bottleneck yeah. for progress in humanity yeah and i think there that is where they have unlocked the optimism right they're optimistic that it will work that's right that's and right. i think that could be one of the fundamental reason that you know the spacex the tesla or you know the vc right uh, why they are going so crazy right and once you build that even if the world in fact if the world says it is not going to work that is actually fuel yeah that energizes them yeah to fucking go at it yeah that's such a great note to end the session prasanna thank you so much for sharing these fascinating fascinating i had goosebumps multiple times in between this and i'm sure many of our uh, audience will get the same thank you thank man. you so much thank you